Um, this is part two. So we had part one, was the first six weeks. And in part one, we first began by talking what is systematic theology in general. Um, and we said that it's important. We need to know systematic theology as a church. Theology is more at home in the church than it is in a seminary classroom or in a university somewhere. Um, systematic theology is a theological discipline. It, it seeks um, to compile what the whole of Scripture teaches about a single topic. Um, so that's where we began um, way back, um, lesson one of this equipping class on systematic theology. And then we, we started our first category, which was bibliology. Now, why did we start systematic theology with a study of the doctrine of the Word of God, um, the doctrine of Scripture? You remember? Technically, we could begin anywhere in our study, but we began with bibliology. Because it's, it's what? It is the, it's the foundation. If we get our understanding of the Bible wrong, what the Bible is, then it's going to affect everything else that we construct um, on this foundation. Um, who God is, what he's like, everything that we're attempting to know in theology. Uh, if we get the Bible wrong, what it is, it's inerrant, it's infallible, it's necessary, all those things... Um, it will affect our theology. So if you missed any of those lessons or want any outlines on that, um, you can see me. I can get, I can get those to you. And now we come to part two. And uh, during this six weeks, we're tackling the category of, it's called theology proper. It's just a fancy um, title for the doctrine of God, the being of the person of God. Um, and it's a massive topic. We could be spending weeks studying this, as you would expect. God is a, a great being, and we'll be spending eternity learning about him. Uh, but we have six weeks, and so we're just going to try to hit some of the mountain peaks. And uh, Michael Duncan did a fabulous job serving you the first two weeks, um, covered the, the attributes of God, his incommunicable attributes, who he is and his essence, things that are unique to himself, and his communicable attributes, ways in which... Um, he relates to us in ways in which we may imitate him. So that leaves us four more weeks um, in this study of, of God. And so what we're going to do is the, the next two weeks, this week and next, we're going to talk about the providence of God. And then we're going to finish this study in the last two weeks with a, the easy topic of the Trinity um, in the last, last two weeks. So we've got four weeks left, and, and we're going to begin with Providence. So what is providence? Without cheating, looking at your notes, what, what would you say providence means? What is God's providence? Yeah. Plan. Plan. Excellent. Good. What else? Providence. The providence of God. You've probably heard it said. Yes, Chris. Good, very good. Mm -hmm. Yes, good, we'll see that tonight. Yeah, his active involvement in creation. Good, what else? Providence, providence of God. Any others? Matt. Good, excellent. His sovereign ordaining of events. Good. 
So this word providence is another one of those big theological words we talked about when we introduced systematic theology. We have lots of these words. You're not going to find in the Bible this word providence, just like you're not going to find trinity. But it's a helpful word because it crystallizes, it summarizes a very important biblical truth about, about God and how he, how he works. So let me start by giving you a few definitions here. What is God's providence? Westminster Confession puts it like this, The God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible knowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of his glory, of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. It's long, it's a shorter one from the Westminster Larger Catechism. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. Or, it's Heidelberg, the Almighty, everywhere present God, power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Dr. Zemeck put it this way, providence is that continuing work of God, whereby he controls all things, including time and history in the universe, thereby certainly bringing about the fulfillment of his wise plan. Next question, though, is how does this differ from sovereignty? You've probably heard the word sovereignty, the sovereignty of God. Um, We talk about that a lot. Uh, We know sovereignty has something to do with God's rule and his control. Um, We also know that there's not a little bit of controversy surrounding the topic of the sovereignty of God. Um, But what about providence? How does this differ from sovereignty? Well, generally speaking, these terms are relatively synonymous with one another. Um, You can use them interchangeably often. The only exception is that providence tends to be a more helpful and comprehensive term than bare sovereignty. Sovereignty declares God's rule and his control and his right to be involved in all of creation, but providence communicates that this rule and control is unto a specific purpose and a plan ordered by God's good and fatherly hand. John Piper helpfully writes, The term sovereignty does not contain the ideal of purposeful action. But the term providence does. You might hear that word provide, right? The word providence. Um, God told Abraham, or Abraham said, God will what? He will provide for himself a lamb. The, The word in Hebrew is he will see for himself a lamb. We say in English, he will see to something, right? I will see to it that it that it happens. That's the idea here. God will see to it that it happens. It implies a plan, and it involves his control. That's providence. 
It's God seen to something. Sovereignty focuses on God's right and power to do all that he wills. But in itself, it does not express any design or goal. Historically, the term providence has been used as a shorthand for this more specific focus. So that's what we're going to be studying in the next two weeks, the providence of God. Um, And before we begin, I just want to say that I'm aware that these are not easy doctrines. Um, They're large, they're weighty, they're unsettling, they they rattle our world. Um, They cut against our natural desires, our expectations for what God should be like. Um, In reality, that's what we should expect from God, right? He's not like us. Um, He's not like who we are, or he doesn't do what we think often in our finite and fallen um, minds and and opinions. Um, We should expect that the Bible will unsettle us. We should expect that it should rattle us and turn our world over. Um, In fact, we should be concerned when it's not doing that. God is a great being. His ways are not our ways. So there's a good kind of unsettling that comes from these doctrines of a a large, sovereign God. Um, And I know for some of you, these are not new. I'd say for most of you, we will be doing review. You've embraced them. You've come to love them. Um, They're precious truths to you. Um, For others, they're going to be shockingly new, probably. I've never heard this before. It might rattle your world. Still, for others of you, um, you've probably heard of them before, but you may still be uncertain. Are they really biblical? Where does the Bible declare some of these things about about God? So no matter who you are, I just want to invite you to hear the Bible afresh tonight. Um, All I want to do is open up the fire hydrant of God's Word and just be inundated with text after text. And I have a lot of verses prepared. Um, That's important. It's, It's intentional. I want us to feel the weight of passage after passage after passage. That is where the authority is at. So we want to work hard and not bring in our preconceived expectations or ideas to the text. We want to let God's Word speak for itself. And more than that, just letting God's Word speak for itself, we want to place biblical weight an emphasis on what the Bible places weight and emphasis. We want a biblical balance. We want the flavor of the Bible to be guiding the way we do theology here. So we want God's Word to speak for itself, and we want to correct biblical balance as we're handling these doctrines. So that's God's providence. Um, and uh, let's, let's begin As we read the Bible, in fact, the very first chapter in the Bible, we come to find out that God is the creator of all things. All things were made by him and for him and belong to him. And as this creator, he's not simply created this world and then left it to run on its own. He sustains it. He's actively involved in it. And he governs everything in it such that it achieves plans and purposes for the world. He's a great king who rules over his creation. So let me show you some overarching 
biblical affirmations of this truth. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. I think the NASB says His sovereignty is over all. Psalm 135, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Romans 8.28, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Ephesians 1.11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him. Notice this universal principle upon which predestination is built. Here's the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So there's some overarching biblical affirmations of this, of this doctrine. To think more clearly about it, we need to get more biblical data. The providence of God is normally divided into three aspects. What's the nature of providence? Theologians like to divide it up usually into three key ingredients, if you will. There is concurrence, there's government, and there's preservation. Again, don't be scared by the theological words. They're not hard to understand. Um, concurrence, government, and preservation. Wayne Grudem put it like this, God is continually involved with all created things such that, one, he keeps them existing. This is preservation in maintaining the properties with which he created them. Two, he cooperates with created things. This is his concurrence in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And three, this is his government, he directs them to fulfill his purposes. And tonight, we're just going to tackle one of these. We're going to do concurrence, um, his control. And uh, we're going to save the other two for for next week. Um, It may be helpful to begin with God's government, um, talking about what is his goal. He's not just arbitrarily controlling things. He has a purpose for which he's doing all things. So it might be helpful to be, begin there. Um, but I want to begin with God's control, his ability to accomplish all his purpose. And then when we've gotten that foundation laid, we'll move on to explain his governing and his preservation. See, you can have many plans, you can have many intentions, but if you don't have control, then your purposes are a mere hope so. So let's begin. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 46. This will be our springboard text into this topic. Isaiah 46. Look at verse 9. That second line begins by saying, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, 
saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. It is this which makes God unique. All through Isaiah, we see this is what sets him apart from all the other false gods in the world. It's one of the ways in which he demonstrates his uniqueness. There's none like him. How? Because he declares the end from the beginning. In other words, from the very beginning of time, he declares all the way to the end what will be. From the very earliest of time, God declares what will be all the way to the very end. This is his perfect and his comprehensive foreknowledge of all things. Um, and only God can do that. But look at the rest of the, of, the, of the verse. God foreknows all things, but when God declares what will be, what is he saying? Look at the verse. Declaring from the, the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying. You see that? Saying. What is he saying? My counsel shall stand. He's not merely reporting events. When he's declaring the end from the beginning, he's not really merely reporting events that he knows that will happen, but he has not intended to happen. You see that? No, when he declares the end from the beginning, he is doing what? He is saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. So yes, he foreknows all things, but his foreknowledge is rooted in what? His his purpose, his plan. When he declares the future, he is declaring what he has purposed and planned to be. You see that? He does not simply respond to the future. But he purposes and plans and decrees all which will be. In other words, this passage tells us that when God foretells the future, he is foretelling his purposes. And his purposes always come to pass. And by implication, this must mean This must mean that everything that takes place in the world is not only foreknown by God, but it's also ordained and planned and caused by God. And it has to mean that. Because if it doesn't mean that, then it would mean that some things do happen, which God did not plan to happen. Right? And if that is true, you're left with two options. If that is true, either God had some other purpose for something to happen, and that didn't happen. Something else happened. And if that's true, this verse is false. Okay? Or, the other option that you have is God is indifferent. He's unconcerned about some things that happen, and he doesn't have a purpose or a plan for them. But both of those options are just biblically untenable. We can't hold those. This verse must imply 
that everything takes place in the world is not only foreknown by God, but also planned and ordained by God. So his purposes and plans are always accomplished, and there's nothing that takes place outside of what he has ordained and determined to take place. And this is true because of his control, what we are calling concurrence. Okay? So what does concurrence mean? Let's talk about that really quickly. Give you a quick definition. John Frame puts it this way. The doctrine of concurrence is merely an application of the general principle that God brings all things to pass. Concurrence teaches that God causes events on the micro level as well as on the macro level. He uses second causes. We'll talk about those. But none of the second causes works without him. He uses second causes, but he is always working in and with them. Or a simpler definition, Wayne Grudem, God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. In other words, this doctrine teaches that God's control is effectual and it is Universal. God's control is effectual and universal. Nothing's outside of his control, and his control always prevails. And concurrence teaches that God often works in and through means. Right? He uses instruments and tools and willing agents to carry out his plan. So let's look at this quickly. First, God's control is effectual. Let me give you a few verses here. His control is effectual. Any questions before I move on? I've been going at a fast pace. Um, I have a lot of content to get to, but I don't want to uh, leave you behind. We tracking? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So he's asking about the end of that Grudem quotation. It's talking about um, they, how did it say, um, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. That's talking about those agents that are acting that God is working through. Um, so yes, we're going to get to that at the end. How does this work? Um, and how does it... Um, how are people morally responsible, and does it compromise true freedom, and, and all those things? Um, so, excellent question. You are right on. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yep, so there's nothing outside of his control, and his control always prevails. Um, so that's what we're going to look at first. His control is effectual. That's what we mean. It always prevails. Okay, so let's look at a few verses here. Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Same implications that we saw in Isaiah 46. 
Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Isaiah 43, also henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from My hand. I work and who can turn it back? His control is effectual. But it's also universal, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. His control is universal. Not only does he have plans and purposes that always succeed, but his control is over all nature. Events, history, individual lives, decisions, sins, evils, Satan, and even faith. Therefore, none of these things ever fail to accomplish his purpose at any moment. So let's just do a quick survey of each of these. And again, we're opening the fire hydrant. It's just going to be a lot of biblical data. I don't expect you to remember it all. That's why you have an outline. I just want you to feel the force of text after text after text. This is the very warp and woof of the Bible. Um, It's not just hanging on a few proof texts here and there. Okay. Number one, God is in control of the natural world. He's in control of natural events. That's the inanimate objects of the world. Nature, weather, plants, animals, stars and atoms, galaxies and electrons, earthquakes and a sparrow dying. Let me show you. Psalm 65, you visit the earth and water it. You provide their grain. You have prepared it. You water its furrows, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. Psalm 135, whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Application, He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Psalm 145, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Psalm 147, He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and the young ravens that cry. Again, Psalm 147, He sends out His command to the earth. He gives snow. He scatters frost. He hurls down ice crystals. And when He wills, He melts them. He makes His wind blow and the waters flow. Psalm 148, Fire, hail, snow, mist, stormy wind, fulfilling your word. You say, well, Michael, that's just the Old Testament. Jesus, Matthew 5, God makes his son to rise in the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Matthew 6, the father feeds the birds. Matthew 6, again, God clothes the grass with lilies. God is in control of the natural world. If we had time, I would love to take you to Psalm 104. Beautiful psalm of of God's good, constant, and sustaining care. Um, 
as creator. He not only created the world with all of its natural processes and let it go on like a machine, he's intimately involved in the creation. Grass grows because God causes it to grow. It's night because God makes it dark. Lions are satisfied because God feeds them. They die because God takes away their breath. God gives them life. Nothing takes place which does not have God as the ultimate cause. But that's just natural events. What about random events? Random events and accidents. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. The lot. Think of rolling a pair of dice. Nothing more random than that. It's how you would try to make an unbiased decision, unbiased selection. Um, It was not only used in the history of Israel. We see it, the sailors in Jonah. Um, The book of Esther, Haman casts lots. Solomon tells us that a random event like this, but it's every decision, see that every decision is from the Lord. That does not mean that you should try to make decisions by casting lots. Um, There are, that's unbiblical. And yet, God is in control of how the lots fall. Look at this. Exodus 21, an accident, a case of manslaughter. If a man did not lie and wait for him, but look at this, but God let him fall into his hands. Isn't that an interesting way to say it? He wasn't intending to kill this man, but he died because God let him fall into his hands. Or, 1 Kings 22, Ahab thinks he can avoid the judgment of God. He disguises himself, goes into battle. The enemy king commands his soldiers, don't fight with anybody except the king of Israel. They don't know that he's disguised. But a certain man drew his bow at random. The Hebrew there is in his integrity. He's not intending to get Ahab here. And struck the king of Israel between the scale, armor, and breastplate. And therefore he said to his chariot driver, turn around. There's no random events. There's no accidents. God controls the flight of an arrow and the roll of a dice and even um, cases of manslaughter. Put it simply, there's no such thing as Murphy's Law. So that will come as a surprise to my family. Um, There are no Murphys, even though many times I've been convinced that there were. Um, There's no accidents, no random events. He's behind all of them. He's also... In control of the smallest of details, look at Matthew Matthew 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. Notice it does not say apart from the awareness of your Father. See that? It doesn't say apart from the knowledge of your Father or something like that. The whole purpose of this verse is to encourage believers who are fearful in the midst of persecution and suffering not to be fearful. But if that's all it means, 
God knows when a pharaoh, sparrow falls, and God knows, God's aware of what might happen to you. It's not going to be much help to a fearful Christian. The point is that apart from the knowledge and consent, permission of God, not a bird falls to the ground or a hair falls out of your head, apart from your Father. Therefore, do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. You see how that works? How much more will not a single hair fall out of your head than what was permitted and allowed by your Father? It's control on every detail of your, of your life. Okay, Michael, I can get my mind around the good green grass and the beautiful snow and the refreshing spring rain. But what about natural disasters, hurricanes, calamities, tsunamis, tornadoes? Does God ordain each one of these? And He does. Isaiah, I'm sorry, begin in Job 121. Calamities have happened to Job. We know they came through the hand of Satan, but Job attributes it ultimately to the Lord. The Lord has taken away. Chapter 2 of Job. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin by attributing that to the Lord. Ecclesiastes 7, In the day of prosperity be joyful, in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other. Isaiah 45, the Lord says, I make well-being and create calamity. The Hebrew there is ra. You can sort of hear it. It means evil. Sometimes it could be moral evil. Sometimes it could be calamity, a natural evil. Seems to be the nuance here, the, the destruction that's coming, the calamity. The Lord's sovereign over both of those, we will see. Lamentations 3, who has spoken, has it not come to pass, unless the Lord commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Answer, it is. Amos 3, 6, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? In other words, if God's able to make it rain... He's also certainly able to withhold rain and to prevent whatever disaster, natural or man-made. The point is, whatever takes place in the natural world is the result of God's purpose. Either His purposeful permission or sometimes His purposeful causation. We see both of those in the Bible, but really there's not much distinction. Both are in God's control. He's in control over the whole natural world for His purposes. Now, the common objection to what I've just said here in these verses is that, all right, Michael, like, these apply certainly to specific situations with specific contexts, but they do not generally apply to all of life, like you're saying. Yes, God sometimes intervenes to cause it to rain or to cause an earthquake, and God sometimes intervenes to control the movements of a dice. And he sometimes intervenes to cause an arrow to go right where he wants it. 
But not always. Come on. Instead, God's created this universe with natural laws like gravity and meteorology and physics, laws of motion. And that's how the universe normally runs and functions. There's at least two problems with that reasoning. The first is that many of these verses do not speak of specific instances, right? Especially in the Psalms and the Proverbs. It is very general. The point is not that God sometimes causes grass to grow or a bird to die or the lot to produce the decision, but that whenever any of these things happen, they're ultimately caused by God. And it's obviously not to deny that there are natural forces at work in the world, physics and meteorology and any other number of things. There's a natural explanation for just about any natural occurrence that you observe out there. A physicist, if he had all of the relevant information, could tell you just why the dice produced the result that they did, right? There's the the velocity and the motion, the forces of gravity and the direction, all those things. He could probably figure that out and compute that for you. Um, But this is what the doctrine of concurrence is. It doesn't deny that things are caused on a natural level, Rather, it tells us that God is ultimately behind all of these causes. That's why they're called second causes. Yes, it rained because of meteorological events that are taking place, but God is ultimately behind even those meteorological events, causing them to work his plan and his his will. And this is the... God and trance worldview of the, of the Bible. We ought to recognize the universal application of these verses and develop a God and trance worldview of all of life and be on guard against an unbiblical naturalism. We live in a very modernistic and naturalistic age, don't we? We're told the universe is a great machine. It operates independently of its own will, its own accord, um, we might say it's God's creation, but we fail to see the fingerprints of God everywhere. We treat it as a pre-programmed machine, just working out its natural course. Um, again, it's not denying that God created laws, but he stands sustaining and directing them according to his, to his will. John Piper, in his book on providence, said this, It is a tragic fact that modern man, the modern world, that most contemporary, scientifically-minded people think it is more true and significant to speak of the technicalities of photosynthesis than to say God makes the grass grow. This is not a sentence for children. It is a sentence, a reality desperately needed by soul-shrunken modern man whose world has been reduced from a theater of wonders to a machine running mindlessly on mechanical laws. That's one of the aims of these lessons on providence, that we would have our eyes opened afresh to this God-entranced world view, God's providence all around us. There's not a leaf that flutters on a tree or a blade of grass that grows that God did not cause and ordained to grow. 
And this is the astonishing atheism that is just natural to us as humans. God intends that we recognize it and give thanks to him for it. What's just so amazing is that man is so quick to point his finger in God's face when some disaster happens, but fails to give thanks for the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of providences all around his life, in which God hinders such disasters and provides abundantly and continues to sustain creation. Again, listen to John Piper. The world and even thousands of Christians give no praise and thanks to God for millions of daily life-sustaining providences because they do not see the world as a theater of God's wonders. They see it as a vast machine running on mindless natural laws except when our heart's rebelliousness and self-exaltation find a suitable opportunity to find fault with God and justify our blindness to a billion acts of kindness toward his defiant creation. That's how the providence of God should affect you, my friends. The second reason why it doesn't work to say that these verses don't prove the universal control of God on every facet of the world, they're just instances when God intervenes in a unique way. It's because in the Bible, God's... um, Acts of miracle, when he does intervene in a, in a unique way, he parts the Red Sea, or he makes the, the sun go backwards, or whatever it is. When he intervenes, they are not random, they're not exceptions to God's universal control, but they're dependent on the fact of his universal control. And um, We don't have time, we'd love to go to Psalm 136, which I think really makes that Makes that clear. God's general works of providence are just as miraculous as his unique interventions. And his unique interventions, his miracles that we see in the Bible, are dependent on the fact that he's the God who has control of all things. If he didn't have control on every facet of life, he would not be able to do the miracles we see him do in the the Bible. So God is in control of the natural world. Let's move on. God's in control of human history. Let's go quickly through some of these. Psalm 33, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Plans of his heart to all generations. Isaiah 14, talking about the Assyrians. Isaiah 45, talking about Cyrus, the Lord raises up. Daniel 4. We're in Daniel. You should all remember these truths from those messages. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Again, the objection is that, yeah, these texts prove that sometimes God intervenes in the course of world history for the sake of his covenant people, but they don't prove that all events of world history are under God's control. But we must first remember that God's plan and purposes for his covenant people didn't come to the end in the Bible, right? You are the covenant people of God, the church, for whom he is working all things out for his end goal. 
Um, he's still at work for the sake of his people and the glory of his name. And second, we must remember that for God to be in control of these larger events, he has to be in control of every single thing leading up to it. If God is in control of the president who becomes president, he must be in control of who votes and how votes are counted and the machines or whatever it is for Pilate to be placed in governorship. He had to be in control of all the political maneuverings that got Pilate to to that place. God is in control of human history, down to the smallest detail. God is in control of individual human lives. In conception, the Lord opened her womb. Children are heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb. Conception is his work. Our genetic makeup and every detail of our physical and relational lives. Psalm 139, you formed me, my inward parts, you knitted me in my mother's womb. For God to be in control of our very DNA, who our parents are, he must be in control then of all of our circumstances. And all the circumstances that were before us, and all the decisions that were made before us, and the physical processes and backgrounds which led up to our conception. But his providence doesn't end there. It reaches down to the very events of our lives. The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. Psalm 75. Not from the east or the west, but from the wilderness comes lifting up. The Lord executes judgment, putting down one, lifting up another. In James 4, we should say if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. He's control of every event in our life. Illness and handicaps are in the hands of God's providence. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Answer, yes it is. John 3, Jesus answered about the man born blind. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. God's providence, that this man be born blind. Or Lazarus, this illness is not unto death, it's for the glory of God. There's purpose and plan. Even the duration of our lives, our days are numbered, and even the manner of our our death is all in God's providence and His control. Next, God's control of human decisions. God's control of human decisions. Our human decisions then. Alright, I can understand the natural world and maybe even historical events, but decisions? Yes. Genesis 45, Joseph says, And do not be angry or distressed with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Well, actually, it was the brothers who sent Joseph to Egypt in a premeditated plan to get rid of him for good. But this verse tells us that God was ultimately the one behind their decisions to send him to Egypt. As evil as they were, and we'll see that in in a minute. Isaiah 44, Cyrus He is my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purposes. Again, Cyrus made his own decisions to do what he did for his own 
purposes. He didn't know he was executing the Lord's plan, but he did so because God had ordained he should do so. God's control um, over human decisions is especially seen in, in the fulfillment of prophecy. Prophecy not only foretold merely what would take place, but also God's plan and desire for what would take place. And in this sense, those who acted to fulfill prophecy often did so unconsciously. They didn't know they were doing it. It was unwilling. And yet they were doing God's plans. Go to John 19 with with me, if you will. John 19. Verse 31. John 19, 31 says, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for it was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. They might take them away. Verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he had already died, they did not break his legs. Verse 34. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Drop your eyes down to verse 36. For these things took place so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones might be broken, and another they will look on him whom they have pierced. John says this happened so that purpose, intention. You see that? so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. But the soldiers did not do it in order to fulfill Scripture. They did it for their own reasons. It was their own decision to do it. But God purposed them to fulfill Scripture. In other words, when God purposes something, especially in prophecy, that something must necessarily come to pass. It cannot not come to pass. So the question that always comes up here is, does this negate human what? Responsibility or human freedom, right? Human freedom. Are we just robots? Is this just mindless determinism? Does this negate human freedom? And the answer to that is yes and no. It depends on what you mean by human freedom. In one sense, the soldiers here were not free to break Jesus' legs. Right? They could not do otherwise because God had purposed that they would not do otherwise. And the same is true for those who crucified Jesus and Judas who betrayed Jesus and any other prophecy that was fulfilled. These three scriptures must, must, must. It's a divine imperative. It must take place. It cannot not. But often when people bring up human freedom or free will, they mean to say ultimate self-determination. Okay? Remember that. Ultimate self-determination. They mean that for our decisions and actions to have any meaning or significance in themselves, they have to be completely free and without any external causes or influences. For our decisions to bear moral weight, they cannot be ultimately the result of God's causation. That's what people say. The problem with that is such a definition of freedom is 
foreign to the pages of Scripture. You will not find that anywhere in the Bible. That idea is brought to the Scriptures from outside. And if you were here with us in Bibliology, we learned why we can't do that. Scripture is authoritative, and it's necessary, right? We're not bringing some ideas that we formed over here philosophically. That must be the case and impose it onto Scripture, that Scripture must answer to. We must not import a definition of freedom that the Bible never affirms. We must be very careful that we don't bring our own definitions and assumptions, what freedom is and what is necessary to make our actions free and real and significant and morally responsible. It's a false and not biblically warranted assumption to say that in order for our decisions to be truly free, they must be causeless, not influenced by any external factors. But the Bible never affirms that we are free in the sense that we are ultimately outside of God's control, ever. In fact, not only did the Bible not affirm that we're outside of God's control, but it also tells us that there is something else controlling our decisions and our actions. You know what that is? What's that? Our lusts. Good. It's another word for that. Sin. Romans 3. It's called sin. No one is free in the sense that they possess some ultimate self-determination and no one is free because we're enslaved to sin, unable to choose good on our own. We'll come back to that later. So all of this to say is that there is a sense in which we are not free, in that rationalistic, philosophical sense that man has devised. We're not free in the sense of ultimate self-determination. We cannot choose contrary to God's ordained will, and we cannot choose contrary to our sin nature. But in what sense are we free? Right? I said yes and no. So no in that sense that's been man-made, but yes in, a, in another a very important sense. How are we free? We're free in the sense that our decisions and actions carry significance and bear moral responsibility. Simply put, our decisions are free and we are responsible for them because they are our decisions. They are decisions that were willingly chosen. We do what we want to do. You do what you want to do. Jesus said our actions come from where? From our hearts. They come from our minds, our wills, our emotions. That's what drives what we do. That's why they're real. They're ours. I chose it. I desired it. I wanted it. The soldiers cast lots for Christ's clothing because they wanted to. Pilate ordered Christ's crucifixion because he wanted to. The Bible says that our choices flow from our hearts. And it's this that makes our decisions really our decisions. And we're held morally responsible for our decisions and choices because they come from our our hearts. In other words, there's no contradiction 
between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. There's no contradiction between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We have to maintain balance here. How they work is a mystery. And we come to a wall of worship that we've talked about. We go as far as the Bible tells us to go, and we stop, we put our hands on our mouth. But we have to affirm this because the Bible affirms it. And the Bible often puts them side by side. Matthew 18. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. Divine sovereignty. They must come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Man's responsibility. Luke 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Divine sovereignty. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Human responsibility. John 6, 37, all the Father gives to me will come to me, divine sovereignty, and whoever comes to me. You have to make a decision. You come to Christ. Um, I'll never cast out human responsibility. Um, The question is, do we get any insight from Scripture as to how God might work to bring about his will in our willing choices? Um, What are some of the methods of the Lord's work? We don't want to pry, right, into mysteries, Yet the Bible does give us a few few instances. Let me show you some. God's in control of human decisions, often through prevention. Through prevention. He prevents choices that people would have made. Genesis 11, the building of the Tower of Babel. He hindered them. Genesis 20, Abimelech with with Abraham's wife. God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know you've done this integrity, and it was I that kept you from sinning against me. He hindered his decision. He brought his will about through choices. Or through permission. Sometimes through prevention, sometimes through permission. He could have easily prevented it, but he allowed it. And I don't have to give you any specific scripture because all of the events that happen in Scripture are because of his permission. He could have stopped it, and he didn't. He chose not to. Finally, it's through directing the heart. Um, He is at work in the heart level in some mysterious way. It's from the heart that life flows, and the Lord is the one that directs the heart. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Exodus 12, the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they gave them what they asked. Exodus 14, the Lord said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over over Pharaoh. We have lots of these hardening passages. God hardens the heart. He doesn't do that for people who truly love him and for believers. It's a form of judgment. It's people that have already rejected him, and God responds by hardening their hearts so he can get glory over them. Romans 1. We were here in Romans 1, weren't we? God hands them over to their own sin for his own glory. In other words, God always brings about his purposes through the free, willing choices of people. And his purpose is never thwarted on this level. And we are still absolutely responsible 
from because um, it comes from our willing hearts. We're almost done. What about sin and evil? All right, Michael. Natural world, yeah. History, yeah. Human decisions, that was tough, but okay, I think I get that. Sin? Evil? God's in control of that? Yes. Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says, As for you, you meant wrath. There's that Hebrew word evil against me. But God meant, what's the next word? It. What is that it? Might be a little ambiguous in English. It's not in Hebrew. That it is the evil. The word meant means to purpose or plan or devise. You brothers purposed evil, but God purposed the evil for good. It was His plan and intention that the brothers of Joseph would do this evil so that Joseph would go to Egypt so that this covenant people would be preserved and His plan unfolds from, from there. Look at some of these passages. I, I remember reading through the, the Old Testament once and just being hit by these. 1 Samuel 2. Remember uh, Hophni and Phinehas? I'm sorry, is that their names? Eli's, brother, uh, Eli's sons? Am I right? I think that's it. If someone sins against a man, Eli says, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. Why? Because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Judges 14, with Samson, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord that he was going down to these uh, Philistine women. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. It was from the Lord. That was sin. 1 Kings 12, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, splits the kingdom. The king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which he had spoken. 2 Chronicles 25, But Amaziah would not listen, for it was of God, in order that he might give them into the hand of their enemies. And really, we need look for, no further than, than the cross. The worst sin that was ever committed in human history was the, crucif- the crucifixion of the Son of God. Acts 2 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. See, plan and foreknowledge together. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 4.27, For truly in this city we're gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do what? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place as they slaughtered the Son of God. God is in control of of sin.
But while God often ordains and works out His purposes through the willful and often sinful choices of human beings, there's a few implications we have to emphasize as we, as we close here. And you probably are feeling the tension. Number one, man cannot blame God for the sin he has committed. Human responsibility. Man has only himself to blame. He's never excused from his sin because God used it to accomplish his purposes. He raises up the Babylonians to accomplish his purposes, and then he judges them for all the sins and the abominations they committed. I'll show you one passage. Romans 9, Paul knows what we're feeling. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? How can I be morally responsible if he's ordained it? Paul, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? And has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? Paul doesn't pry into the mystery. He just says, who are you, old man? God is sovereign and you are responsible. We cannot blame God for our sin. Number two, God is not the cause of sin, nor is he ever guilty of sin. God does not and cannot tempt people with evil. James 1, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted and he himself tempts no one. These doctrines do not make God the author of sin, as a lot of people like to accuse God can create, he can ordain, he can purpose it, and yet he's not the actor in it, and he's not guilty for it. Um, It's because he ordains his purposes through the willing choices of his creation. How he does that is a mystery. Number three, consider the alternatives. If you don't like holding these things in tension, as the Bible does over and over, um, consider the alternatives you have. Either God is not sovereign, he's not in control of all that takes place in the world, um, or he's the author of sin. Wayne Grudem says, if we maintain that God does not use evil to fulfill his purposes, then we would have to admit that there's evil in this universe that God did not intend, is not under his control, and might not fulfill his purposes. And not only is that contrary to the Bible, that's a scary universe to live in, isn't it? Both of these alternatives are biblically unacceptable. So that's the first of three aspects of God's providence. That's a lot, I know. His concurrence, his control, universal, effectual, and yet he works through agents and causes natural human will such that his purposes are always fulfilled. And man is always responsible. John Frame closes with this quote here. It says, as B.B. Warfield said in regard to biblical inspiration, um, we made this point when we were going through biblical ins- inspiration. 
the total evidence for God's providence or biblical inspiration. Total evidence for God's providence is like an all-devouring avalanche. One may deftly avoid a few rocks here and there, but one cannot escape them all. (laughs) And we just got a taste of some of that avalanche tonight. Um, It's text after text after text. So next week, we're going to be diving into the other two aspects of providence. We'll be looking at some more objections to it and discuss how should we apply this to our lives. Um, Is there a Christian duty involved in in providence? And there is. Um, How should we be working this out practically in our lives? So at 619, I gave you one minute for questions and comments. Um, Any thoughts? I'm here afterwards if you have something you would like to talk about or uh, questions if I was unclear. But anything before we close? All right. Great. Well, let me pray. There you go. Father, we give thanks to you for you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever and it's everywhere, Lord. Help us to leave tonight seeing your fingerprints all over our lives. That it would result in thanksgiving and praise and worship as we live in a theater of wonders. That we would trust you. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father. And Lord, that we would not be flippant and casual about how we live. For we're responsible. You command us, Lord, to know your word, to fear you, trust you, obey you. Help us, Lord. Be glorified in our lives. We want to be instruments through which you bring glory to your great name. We love you. Bless us this week, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.